But we are starting today with an announcement made about an hour ago. This is the province cracking down on organized crime, money laundering, and uh, dealing with unexplained wealth orders. Civil forfeiture undermines the profit motive behind unlawful activity by going after the proceeds of crime. Most cases are linked directly to drugs, gangs, and organized criminals that cause serious damage and suffering in our province. Organized crime and money laundering techniques have become increasingly sophisticated and pervasive. So we're becoming more agile to confront the tactics of drug traffickers and organized criminals head on. Based on the recommendations of the Cullen Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering, we are making changes to introduce unexplained wealth orders. Too many people are recruited into organized crime with dreams of exotic cars, fancy homes, and a glamorous lifestyle. It is anything but. But however, today's amendments will make it more difficult for criminals to bank on their illicit assets. That was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth speaking about these amendments, saying it will make it easier to access information from public bodies and organizations such as real estate boards. It will target the illegal cannabis market and eliminate the limitation period on forfeiture proceedings. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Eleanor Sturko, a Surrey South BC Liberal MLA, currently serving as well as the Shadow Minister for Mental Health Addiction Recovery and education. Uh, Eleanor Sterko, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. It's my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? The, the number of amendments that were announced earlier today, and as we heard there, the public safety minister saying this will make it easier for government to go after uh, civil forfeitures and uh, to go after organized crime. Well, we do support additional tools for law enforcement to combat organized crime. So, and that also actually includes unexplained wealth orders, um, targeting individuals who do have unexplained wealth, making, um, you know, gains hopefully into addressing things like money laundering, and certainly wanting to shut down criminal organizations who are trying to profit off the suffering of other people here in British Columbia. Are there concerns at all, though, that there there could be, and I know the minister was asked this, I think, during the news conference, that what if we're talking about a scenario where somebody perhaps is involved in criminal activity, but it's a family and the others in the family, the others living in the house, uh, perhaps that, that own the vehicles or, or the these, uh, these items that are considered fast cars, things that go into the, the unexplained wealth. What if it's people that aren't themselves? involved in the criminal activity? Well, here's something that I'll just add food for thought for your listeners, Jill. And this goes back to my time as a Surrey RCMP officer. And I think a lot of people saw me as a spokesperson talking about gang issues uh, throughout the lower mainland region, particularly issues that we've had in Surrey. Um, And we often have family members who are providing shelter and they are aiding and abetting in protecting individuals who uh, perpetrate shootings, who deal illicit drugs, and in fact, who are benefiting themselves from profits made off of uh, illicit drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, and human trafficking in BC. So, um, you know, I would think, and in my own experience, it is a rare, rare thing that you have this kind of wealth that we're talking about that is generated through um, really criminal activities that hurt other people in British Columbia and 
including causing deaths of innocent bystanders, um, that these people don't know that their loved one is involved in organized crime. In fact, oftentimes it is money from organized crime given to parents to buy luxury homes and to buy vehicles, and their lives are being financed by the drug trade and through murder. And so, um, yes, it's something we certainly want to be mindful of. And we're going to have a close look at this legislation. I just got it myself just about an hour and a half ago. But, you know, from my own experience as a police officer, it's been a rare thing that family members would have high-level organized crime members in their family getting a large homer or vehicles purchased for them that they had no idea or were not complicit in those um, behaviors. And I'm sure you saw this in your time being an officer as well. In the covering stories like this also, uh, there there are countless times, I think, hearing from parents who say, well, I didn't know uh, how my son or daughter, I didn't know how uh, my teenage child or my young adult child bought that car. I I never asked. I I wasn't really paying attention. Do you think that this will force people to pay a little bit more attention or to find out the answers to those questions as there might be a bigger fear of losing it? Well, I think, you know, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of making sure that you do know what your loved ones are involved in. And that doesn't just mean um, how it relates to criminal activity, but when we're trying to protect youth from involvement in being recruited into organized crime and gang activity to protect our children from um, falling prey to drug traffickers and individuals who seek to profit off of um, organized crime. I mean, it's important to be involved in your loved one's life, your teenage child um, and your younger child in particular to make sure that they are protected from becoming involved in these types of activities. And people should know that, no, you don't um, get to have immunity from aiding and abetting individuals in British Columbia who are committing some very heinous acts. Um, You know, we talk about the money associated to organized crime, but let's face it, the majority of shootings that we have had in British Columbia are related to organized crime and drug trafficking. And so it is important to have additional tools. That being said, you know, David Eby himself was opposed to this type of, um, you know, civil forfeiture, calling it a a silver slope back when the B.C. Liberal government, um, you know, were dealing with this issue. But, um, you know, it's important that it's out now. My only question would be why they've waited so long. It also includes uh, the the elimination of the 10-year limitation period, saying that that will be eliminated so that any property that's connected to lengthy and complex money laundering schemes can be pursued. Is it your understanding, or was that an issue in that they were taking so long that many things were being missed because that 10-year limitation period was done? Well, I... A lot of these are very complex investigations. Um, they can be multi-jurisdictional. They can include both, uh, you know, here domestically and international investigations that have to be coordinated. And I think that by extending the limits on um, when and how long these proceedings can take place would be beneficial to make sure that they can have robust investigations. Um, and so... You know, we'll see how this legislation actually pans out and we'll, we'll be in, you know, obviously committee stage asking questions and, and, and doing um, our due diligence as an opposition. But, you know, the idea and the spirit of this type of legislation, I think, at the end of the day, is to combat um, a problem that our province does face um, that has increased, um, you know, over the last certainly few years with an increase in uh, drug dependencies and the illicit drug trade in British Columbia and any kinds of tools that can help um, be tough on crime. You know, our party has been asking for 
this government to toughen up when it comes to crime. So we'll be making sure that this legislation has all the tools in it that British Columbians need. All right, uh, Eleanor Sturko, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk about this. Okay, thanks, Jill. Take care. Well, certainly there have been so many stories about a fatal stabbing that took place this past weekend in downtown Vancouver. We know that the victim, 37-year-old Paul Schmidt, was killed after a short altercation outside that Starbucks. It happened around 5.40 in the evening on Sunday. And, of course, there were witnesses. There were people that saw this unfold. Police came out asking for witnesses to come forward. But we've also, unfortunately, seen that some people are sharing the video and it is extremely graphic and that has raised some more questions about should there be a law when it comes to sharing graphic video of something that you have witnessed well Sarah Lehman is joining us now lawyer and founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group Sarah thank you so much for coming on the show to talk more about this Thank you for having me on. It's just horrific looking at what happened here. And we've heard from the victim's mother. Uh, She, too, uh, talked uh, briefly about uh, how disturbing it was to know that that people got video of this, got photos and were sharing it. Uh, What is your response or your take on when witnesses do that or do share that kind of really graphic, graphic footage? Well, I mean, this video was just particularly shocking and graphic. I think that anybody who's um, seen it can agree with that. Um, It shows really, you know, what is the most vulnerable moments of of a person um, who is suffering at the very end of their life. It is absolutely horrendous. It has no business online. Um, You know, from a legal perspective, however, it can be difficult to try to Uh, manage what people post online, uh, particularly when um, it's showing images like these, uh, which don't fall under any officially designated category that would apply to some criminal offense, for example. Um, So it is really, really troubling. It's a phenomenon now with social media more often than not. I think we're going to, you know, see, unfortunately, things like this happen. And it may be that the law has to catch up in order to respond to it. And we can understand, I I suppose, how something like this could start in that uh, when you see something in public, whether it's somebody screaming or you see uh, an altercation or you see the beginning of, say, a fight, it it is, like you said, everybody's got these devices. So it almost has become almost second nature. People will start recording it, whether it's to to do that to maybe it's going to be evidence later on or you just want to have a record of this. So, So more and more people are doing that. But in this case when things progressed and things like you said you see the the most vulnerable part of someone's life you see someone being killed uh, is it is the onus on, on the public to to turn the phone off to turn the recording off or to 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 step away or, or how does that work do you think well i mean i think it comes down to a moral issue at the end of the day i mean videos like this can have quite a bit of evidentiary value if we're talking about um, courtroom proceedings. I have seen videos like this, like videos of fights, for example, uh, videos of assault, for example, that can be used and have been used in the course of criminal uh, proceedings. Um, So it can be certainly very, very useful, but it also has really no business online. And I mean, that's just my opinion of it. Uh, not only uh, from, again, a moral perspective, but also 
uh, because it could create some issues with respect to an accused person, for example, getting a fair trial. If we've already had trial by media, you know, it might be even more that can actually um, serve their proper function in a courtroom, for example. So there's so many different dimensions to this. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think that discretion is the most important thing that a person can have uh, if they encounter something like this. And we know that there are policies. I think Twitter has a policy about sharing excessively gruesome images or videos or, or showing something that shows uh, somebody who is deceased. Does it come down if it's not something that, that would be looked at maybe as a criminal, uh, something that would be brought into criminal law? Could it be police, do you think, in that sense, in that it would be up to different social media platforms to ban, to ban things like this? I think it has to be. I think that that is where the onus ultimately falls because it is these platforms that are hosting the content. And so if the content that the platform is displaying um, is gruesome, disturbing, um, you know, in some cases we see policies around pornographic material, for example, that is pretty well regulated, um, you know, maybe they need to start applying uh, those types of policies to uh, this type of content as well and being more vigilant about what goes up and also when it comes down. I'm glad you brought that up as an example, because I was curious if there is overlap or if it's something, if this was going to be something that was going to be looked at to maybe become enshrined in law, would it be something like that? Because if you are somebody who say you, and I know there have been court cases where, and again, it's absolutely awful, and I I don't know why people would do this, but there have been cases where uh, people have recorded a sexual assault and then shared that video. That itself, that, that is breaking a law, isn't it? Yeah, so sharing intimate images without consent um, is definitely illegal. Um, And so, you know, there is, I guess, an argument that could be made that this is also an intimate image that has been shared without consent. I mean, I think we're taking it um, outside of the realm of what legislation legislation intended it to be. But um, it's possible that maybe we could adapt that definition in order to keep up and respond to uh, changing times. Um, You know, it's so unfortunate that we even have to have a conversation like this. Um, We just would hope that people could do the right thing in the moment or, you know, that we wouldn't even have to have to deal with these types of situations on our streets. No, exactly. And and the fact that the family now has to ask people, please, to stop sharing this video and to, to stop putting it out there, I, I mean, is sad as well. I mean, this family's going through uh, uh, being completely devastated by what's happening and then having to deal with this as well. It, it seems strange that, that people think it was a good idea to share the video at all. Um, Does this show, and you kind of touched on this though, but does this show a growing gap between technology and the law? Yeah, I mean, the law is always a little bit slow when it comes to keeping up with technology. And now that we have people walking around with very powerful cameras and recording devices right there in their pocket, um, and also uh, widespread access to social media, um, I think that we're going to see the law struggling to keep up and to adjust in a timely manner uh, to, to deal with these things. I mean, we regularly do see judges refer to different social media platforms, you know, in various court cases, uh, even when imposing, for instance, bail conditions and things like that. Um, I, it's not unusual to see them refer to these um, types of Uh, advances in technology and social media, but um, we're always going to see novel situations like this come up, and unfortunately, it is ultimately a game of catch-up. Could there be a case then, if if it technically isn't 
breaking any kind of criminal law. Would somebody in this case have a civil case about privacy invasion or something like that? I mean, there could be a potential for that. Unfortunately, it's not my area of practicing in civil law, so I would have to leave that up to a civil lawyer. Um, but, I mean, it could be open for the family or the loved ones of this person to make an argument about uh, hardship, pain and suffering as a result of this video being out there. All right. Uh, do, do you think there will be changes or is there enough conversation being had about this uh, that we will see an attempt to, to make that gap between technology and the law uh, close or to make it so, uh, unfortunately, because we are seeing videos and, and photos of things when they happen, that we will have a serious conversation on that level of perhaps changing the laws? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we always need to find... Um, a legislative answer to every social problem that we have, uh, you know. But that being said, I think that it's very valuable to have this conversation because at least it will make people pause and think twice uh, about what they do online and about what they're recording and posting without consent or permission. All right. So it is a a very important discussion to be having for sure. Sarah Lehman, we'll leave it there. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking with mortgage expert Angela Calla, but not talking mortgages. Instead, she was talking about how she had fallen victim to something called the Lily Collins scam. So this is as a result of artificial intelligence going in and cloning things. And you think you're reading a news article. You think you're reading information about, you know, new programs that are out there. But you're not. They're cloning everything, and they are going in and taking over your account. They're going into your account, changing your name. So instead of my name being Angela Calla, they're changing it to Lily Collins. And then they change the email address that you get information to, and they change the two-factor authorization code, phone number, So they're getting it. So I noticed this because I was away on spring break with my kids and I was about to call uh, call home to check on my parents and all of a sudden I get this call, Oh my gosh, what's happened to your Facebook? Did you change your did you change your profile? And and absolutely that was not the case. And so we reported it instantly to Facebook and as I'm reporting it, the hackers are going back and forth and as I'm changing it and going in and uploading my ID to verify who I am, they're doing it at the same time. All right, that was part of Angela explaining what she experienced when she got hacked by this scam. Andy Barrara is joining us now, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, my pleasure, Jill. When you hear that, Angela's account, does that sound familiar as far as that's what people are, are that's what's happening to them? It's very, very familiar. You'd be surprised how many people this is happening to. And typically, it's people that also have like a personal Facebook page, but also a business page. And that's what the hackers are going for, because on the business page, typically, you will have your credit card information on there because people buy Facebook ads. And so what that's really what the hackers are trying to do, because once they take over your profile, they're getting access to that, and they're buying ads on Facebook through your credit card. So that's really the hack. And Angela really nailed it. The, the way that the hack works is there's a couple of ways that they're trying to get it. One, you, you see this link for an ad, you click it, that's a malicious link. Or the other times is a Chromebook extension that you put on the Google Chrome browser, which for if people think it's chat GPT, 
But instead, what this it's basically a virus that goes inside your computer, copies all your keystrokes, everything that you're typing and all the cookies that are stored on your computer. So Facebook thinks it's actually you. And that's why the two factor authentication doesn't work because it thinks it's your actual computer, but it was cloned on someone else's computer. And now they've taken over that account. And that would explain, like she said, while she was trying to take everything back and fix it, the hackers were actually in there at the same time doing the same thing. Absolutely. And this is not just happening on Facebook. I know a very popular YouTube channel that had the same type of hack where they couldn't even access their own YouTube channel. And as they were trying to navigate it, the hackers were doing it in real time. So it's a game of whack-a-mole that you're doing in literally in real time. But Typically, the hackers have the edge because they're, they're the ones that started it, and then you really can't get your, your um, account back. And Facebook is not the best place to get help. So many people reach out to Facebook, but their, their customer service is just horrendous when it comes to these kind of hacks. Yeah, and Angela mentioned that as well yesterday, that it was difficult trying to get anybody and to get any, anybody to, to address this. Uh, I'm still a bit unclear. So how do you protect yourself? Because she mentioned this too, that it's, it's, she thought she was clicking on one thing, turned out to be something else completely. So how do you protect yourself? What is it exactly that people are clicking on that's allowing these hackers in? Well, what the hackers will typically do is find something that's very popular online, and then they try to lure people in. And so a lot of people are very curious about ChatGPT. So I don't know if that's a specific one that she clicked, but it's some type of link. It might have been an ad, and that's the problem, Jill. We, we click on things all the time, you know? Yeah. We, can't be, we can't have our guards. And a lot of people think, well, I have two-factor authentication, so I'm protected. But the hacker, I have to give it to them. They're quite ingenious that they found a loophole through two-factor authentication by cloning basically your computer and making it look like another computer is your computer. And that's why the two-factor authentication doesn't even come up because Facebook thinks it's your computer and you're just logging in like you normally do. Even if the two-factor authentication is your phone that, you know, sometimes it will text a number or text a, a code to your phone that you have to punch in? Yes, yes. That's typically how it, how it works. But what the hackers do is once they get inside your account, they can change to the, what, the different device. So now people can't even use two-factor authentication to get back into their account. The, the big issue, and I've seen this, so many people have reached out to me, Jill, about this, is a lot of people have all of their eggs in one basket when it comes to Facebook. So they're running their entire small business using Facebook to talk to their customers, to promote. And once they, get, they can't get access to that, their business is pretty much uh, gone. So this really uh, reiterates that the importance of still having your website. Use social media, but you've got to bring everyone back to your website because you own that. Facebook renting land. You know, you don't own it. And when something bad like this happens, Facebook is not on your side. They're not going to help you. And, you know, it's a great marketing tool, but again, like the, the piece of advice I tell all small business owners is bring them back to your website. I know it's 2023 and people are like, why do I need a website? But this is why. This is why you need to be able to control the relationship that you have with your customers. 
and just use Facebook as more of a marketing tool rather than put all your eggs in that one basket. You mentioned, too, that they're really going after people that have business uh, business Facebook pages. So is it because that's what I was wondering also when, when I first heard about this was you don't put your credit card information in if it's just your own personal Facebook account. So are they even bothering? Are they trying to get at those accounts if you don't have a business account as well? Well, well, typically, if you have a business account, you you obviously have a personal account as well. Right. And what what happens is they get through your business account, but now they have access to your personal account. And anybody can go on Facebook and just type in Lily Collins, and you'll see the stories. There was one lady, she's had an account for 16 years. All of her photos were on there, and now she can't get into her account and they're absolutely devastated because they've lost those photos. They didn't store them anywhere else. You know, and, and you know, Facebook is such a part of our society. They're not our allies. They are not our friends when things go bad. And, you know, you, it's almost next to impossible to get them to help you because they, they really don't care. But the hackers, you have to always understand, why are they doing this? Like, what's the intent? Are they just evil people? What they are trying to do is find a way to monetize it. And so when they get your credit card information... Then they buy ads to find more scam, like scam more people, and then that, that's how the scam continues. And like you said, we click on things all the time, and that's become, uh, even with cybersecurity programs and training, uh, I think we've become much better at, at knowing if something is coming from an, an address that doesn't seem legit or those uh, emails that you get all of the time saying, oh, your package is on its way, even though you don't have a package coming. So we can be good or as good as we can uh, trying to, to know those things, but... How do you protect yourself against this? If you, like you said, we're always clicking on things. I, I, this is the problem. You know, this happened to me the other day where I just Googled chat GPT. And instead of getting the one, because all these hackers know everyone's searching for that. And if you actually look on the Google search page, pretty much everything underneath the first one, they're all scams where that they're trying to make it look like it's chat GPT, but it's not. And it happened to me. So, I, you know, I feel for people because you, you can't be on guard all the time. But the, the fact that they were able to navigate and get bypass the two-factor authentication makes us very, very dangerous because it just shows how vulnerable we all are. It's just one click, one bad click, and then you can be completely uh, blocked out of your own Facebook account quite possibly forever because the hackers take it over and Facebook won't help you and there's really little recourse you can do once that happens. So I'd love to give you advice, Jill, but it's really hard because they're so clever and it just takes one click and then your life can be ruined. Huh. And when you said it happened to you, did did this scam happen to you or you clicked on something that you shouldn't? I clicked on something that I shouldn't. I thought it was chat GPT. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't look familiar. And then I was like, oh, I, then it, it clicked into me. What's going on? I'm like, because everyone's searching for this. And this is what people have to know. There is no app for chat GPT. So if you see an app in Google Play Store and the Apple Store, that's not the official. There is no app. There is no chat GPT, Google Chrome extension. But everybody, these scammers are smart. They, they do what's very viral, what's popular. Because we don't think about it, you know, and we'll just accidentally click on something. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Well, Andy, if you clicked on it, what hope is there for the rest of us? I I know. I know. It just shows how vulnerable we can be. But this is why I have to, you know, the one litmus test I tell people is like, if you couldn't use your Facebook account tomorrow, you know, what, what would be the ramifications? Would it just be an inconvenience 
or would you be devastated? And if the answer is devastated, take those photos, take all that stuff and back it up, still put it on a hard drive because, you know, photos are precious. If you have pictures of your kids growing up over the course of the last 16 years, those could be wiped out in, in one day just by one bad clip. So, I, you know, I'm just as vulnerable, Jill, as anyone else. But it, it just goes to show that we've got to be very hesitant and to stop clicking. Like, you know, we, we don't even think about it sometimes. That, it happens to me all the time. So I know that even myself, I'm very vulnerable to these types of attacks. And, and you mentioned, too, so that's a good idea. And, and hopefully people do have whatever photos or things they have. If they have a Facebook account, they have them backed up or to, to make sure that you're right. So could you live, would you, would you be devastated if you lost all of that? Uh, so are people not getting their accounts back? I know Angela said yesterday that, that she did finally get through to somebody with Facebook and they, they locked it down. So her account is now locked down. But are people not getting them back at all? Yeah, yeah. Some people, they're completely wiped out and they have to start from scratch. And the ones that the business owners, sometimes they don't even have a log of their customers or a database somewhere else. It's all on Facebook. They do all their communication, all of their marketing on Facebook. So there was a small business owner in Kelowna. She was a photographer and she had to shut her entire business down and start from scratch because she lost all of her contacts for her clients and was unable to contact them because she didn't have a, a website. She didn't have a database of her customers' emails. So she wasn't even able to do that. And she had to shut her whole business and start again from scratch. And it's it's devastating when you hear these kind of stories, but it's very, very common these days. And one other question, I'm not sure if you can answer this. Why is it Lily Collins? Why is that the name <laughs> that, that they're using? Okay, this one I cannot figure out, Jill, because I didn't even know who Lily Collins was until uh, this scam happened. Uh, apparently, she's an actress, a British uh, actress, but that's pretty much all I know. I, I feel sorry for her because forever on Google, she is going to be attached to a scam whenever someone Googles her name. Well, I think she's Emily in Paris, isn't she? Isn't she Phil Collins' daughter? <laughs> this is <laughs> I'm pretty sure like that's said, that actress's name, but I, I'll have to look into it more. Yeah, um, but yeah, so, you know, I feel bad for her because, uh, you know, she's going to forever be attached to this type of scan. If you just even uh, Google her name, you'll see like Facebook scam come right up after that. So I, I feel sorry for her and I don't know why she was the target of hackers. Well, uh, some questions will remain, but uh, there you go. So your best advice, just be extra careful what you click on and know that there is no chat GPT app. That's right. And if you are a small business owner and you use Facebook a lot, ask yourself, what would happen if this, I couldn't access my Facebook account? And if it's, a, you know, if, a, if it's an answer is that you know, you'd be devastated, then you've got to have a plan B and maybe you know, start building a website or some kind of database to, to have all of your customer information there and not just on Facebook. All right. Good advice. Andy, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Time for us to talk a little bit about why the Surrey Teachers Association is calling on the Surrey School Board to protect elementary school library services. Joining us to talk more about this is Lizanne Foster, first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Lizanne, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jill. So what has changed as far as the amount of time that teacher librarians are given to do their core duties? What is the issue that, that you have with what the board has done? 
So essentially, um, my colleague is a, uh, she's an elementary school teacher, and she would have, right now this year, she would have five blocks of time to do the kinds of things with, to collaborate with other teachers to help to make learning for especially um, elementary school teachers, uh, elementary school kids, um, more engaging. She would help them with robotics. She would help them with applied skills, with media literacy, work with the teacher in order to make all those engaging, exciting things in, um, in schools. So next year, she will have one period a week to do that. So it's a dramatic cut in the services she's able to provide as a part of her job. And it's the same kind of services the Surrey Teacher Librarians won an award for. You might recall that last year, Surrey Teacher Librarians won this award for doing all these things that they are now not going to be able to do to the same extent because the board has made a decision about how they're going to implement this um, elementary 10 10 extra minutes of elementary prep time that we won in our last contract. Right. So wasn't this, though, as you mentioned, so this was something that was agreed to in bargaining with the BC Teachers Federation, wasn't it, that, that that teachers would get that increase in prep time? Yes, indeed. And they also funded it. A lot of times when we're talking about services in schools, boards will rightly make the argument that they can't provide more services because there's not enough money. Well, this time we negotiated this increase and it was funded. So the province has provided school boards with the money to provide in order for them to make sure that this increase in elementary uh, time happens. Right. So and, and I'm, I'm taking from this that, that your take is that if it's already been funded, then there need not be the cutting back of the time for teacher librarians. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? Also, because of a lack of funding over time, music teachers have had cuts to their, um, you know, their work. They, there's less time spent on music teachers. So we had proposed to the board, we had said the way to use these 10 minutes is to actually increase the time that music teachers have, because music teachers, librarians, and French teachers, they're the ones that provide, um, like, when elementary school teachers get their prep time, it's because a music teacher, a librarian, or a French teacher is taking their class. So we said, increase the amount of time that music teachers have. Right now, we have the heartbreaking situation of music teachers leaving the district and going to other districts because they can't find full-time positions here in Surrey. Hmm. Uh, what does the board say then, uh, if, you, if you've taken this concern to this, uh, to this move that's been taken by the Surrey School Board? Well, they say that um, our proposal, the way we would, that we're suggesting that um, we do it, they said they can't do it because there's a teacher shortage. And where would they get the teachers? And it's impossible and can't be done. We have had extensive discussions with them. We brought it up in our monthly meeting. We also brought it up in we have this annual um, meeting with the whole school board, with all the trustees. We had teacher librarians make um, presentations to outline and explain exactly what it is, because it's hard for people, I think, to understand that libraries today are not like libraries from 50 years ago. It's not just a book exchange. There's a lot of things that happen. And we had teacher librarians explain that to our school trustees, 
And yet still, we got the, you know, we got the answer that no, it's not going to be that way. We're going to do it this way. We're going to increase, um, you know, take away from teacher librarian services that they provide. And when you mentioned off the top, so going from, was it going from five hours of prep time to one, uh, do teacher librarians need the full five hours? No, it's, it's five periods of prep mm. time. So for five times, there should be five kinds of sessions of time, let's say periods of time in a week that she would have to work with other teachers to provide all this enriching services. But um, now that has been slashed, right, from five to one. Right. And, and again, that's to, to make up that time to allow the teachers to have the additional prep time? Exactly. Um, yeah. you, sorry, you, Lizanne, you mentioned too that, that libraries have changed a lot and that the role yeah. has changed a lot. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about specifically, so if this goes ahead and the board doesn't change it back or, or find some other kind of compromise, what other services are you saying that students are going to lose out on? So, it's, you know, if you're a classroom teacher, you're busy with all kinds of things. I think we've had lots of discussions about the kinds of um, challenges in classrooms today. So the teacher librarian is there to work with this, the classroom teacher to do things like, for example, help the classroom teacher to create resources and learning opportunities about media literacy, about equity, you know, anti-racism, all the kinds of things that make going to the library an enriching experience. Librarians work with robotics. They work with digital citizenship. They do all kinds of things that actually really make school just that much more interesting because it's in a kind of like a dynamic space. It's not a static space. So libraries before, when you go there, you'd be really quiet, you take your book, you'd exchange your book. It's no longer that space. The, the focus now is that it's a library learning commons with the learning being a, um, you know, a verb. And we, if there's a collaboration between teachers, we know these days that learning is collaborative, that it's better to work together. And so the teacher librarian works with the elementary school teachers in order to create these rich learning opportunities for students and especially the ones that are age 9 to 13. You know, the time when you're not a little kid anymore but you're not old enough to fully understand the world and you've got questions, you want to know, you know, what things are. And this is what the, the librarian is um, focused on in working with classroom teachers. And now she's not going to be able to do that for the rest of the school. It's really a regression. It's like we're going backwards, Joe. You know, we, we try to move into the 21st century and, and improve what happens in schools. And, and essentially what the Surrey School Board has decided is, no, let's go back to the 20th century. Uh, is there any chance, do you think, that this could be temporary? Like you said, the board saying that it's because there is a teacher shortage, that it, this could be temporary until perhaps there are more de- teachers? So earlier this year, we spoke to the, we've been constant conversation with them, and our superintendent told us that he anticipates there's going to be a teacher shortage for the next five years. So we don't anticipate this happening, that improving anytime soon, especially since it doesn't seem to be an effort made in retaining teachers. So the people who we have heard from who's, who have come to the district, the district spends an enormous amount of resources on recruiting teachers. So they've recruited these teachers and especially music teachers, and they've come here and now they're leaving. 
they're leaving for other districts where they can get full-time work as a music teacher or in other cases, you know, other other um, different kinds of working conditions. So we are quite curious about how much the school district is actually retaining of, of um, you know, the people that they recruit. And, you know, most of all, we just like, how do you turn around, you, you reward, you, 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 you know, they talked about how our teacher librarians won this award last year, and now they reward them by cutting, by basically undermining their ability to do the things that they were, they won this award for last year. It, it just makes no sense. Well, we will continue uh, to follow along and see what happens next uh, with this. Lizanne, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much, Joe. Well, a new study has taken a very detailed look at all of the calls that came into North Shore Rescue from about 1995 up until 2020, looking at exactly what the calls were for and who was making the calls. And there are some surprising results. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Alec Ritchie, an emergency room physician at Lionsgate Hospital, also a clinical professor of emergency medicine at UBC and the leader of North Shore Rescue's medical team. Dr. Ritchie, thanks so much for taking some time today. Thanks for having me, Joe. This is a very deep dive into the calls. And I think if you asked people, the answer would probably be you would assume that most of the calls were for lost hikers or skiers, maybe with broken bones or injuries. But what did this actually find? Well, as you said, we looked at 25 years of calls, so from 95 to 2020. And we found out that 41% of our calls are medical. So that by medical, we mean that, you know, they needed uh, an ambulance or go to the hospital or that the call was for a medical reason, not just because they were lost. And then we broke down the the different causes of of those medical calls and we had some surprises. Yes. And what were the surprises? Well, uh, that uh, only, well, I say only about 55 percent or so were for were for trauma. So trauma is, you know, an injury like a, a twisted ankle or something like that. So 54% exactly were for trauma and 41% were non-trauma. And by non-trauma, I mean a, a medical issue that is not caused by an accident or a force. For, for instance, if you have chest pain, if you're having a heart attack, that's a medical problem, but it's not due to trauma. So with 41% being non-trauma, we were quite surprised. And I, I understand, too, that th- there was uh, quite a big percentage that, that were mental health or related to mental health. Well, yeah, of the non-trauma medical calls that we were on, 25% were mental health issues, 25% were sort of exposure, like, say, hypothermia or hyperthermia, because you can get heat illness too, and then about 11% were cardiovascular, you know, chest pain, heart issues, that sort of thing. And so when you look at the calls and the types of calls, and and again, that 41% for, for medical issues, not traumatic injury. Does that change things as far as team training and and being prepared for what kinds of calls might be coming in? Well, exactly. As as we all know, you know, data is power. The the more information you have, the the better you can prepare. And North Shore Rescue prides ourselves. We train train hard and we train for, for what we see. So now that we know what we see, that'll influence the type of training we do, what sort of equipment we try to get and, you know, fundraising requests and that sort of thing.
Did the study look at kind of over the years, because it does take the calls from such a a large period of time, did it look to see if, say, the mental health calls really increased during the pandemic or there were different times of year? Or does it it break down kind of the, the timing and if that has an impact on things? No, we didn't go quite that deep a dive. Um, we're, we're quite proud with the deep dive we did. Uh, the lead author, Dylan Collins, uh, was a medical student at the time of this research, but he had already done his PhD in epidemiology, so he was a great guy to have on our team uh, uh, of researchers. Uh, so we, we, you know, did a lot with the data from 25 years, you know, almost 2,100 calls we went through, but we didn't go quite as deep to see what the changes were during the, the well, the, the pandemic wasn't around in 2020 anyway. So we haven't Oh, right. things as deep as you're talking about there. Right. It just seems like it's been around for so much longer than it actually <laughs> has. Um, it also, I know, looked at the, the top activities that led to those medical calls and not a huge surprise there, I would imagine, hiking and snow sports, that kind of thing. Yes. So I think hiking was uh, 53% of the time, and that's hiking, climbing, just walking in, in, in the bush. Uh, biking was about 10% and snow, port, snow, snow sports also about 10%. Uh, we, we've talked a lot or we've done we've had conversations here about night flying about the hoists and, and the equipment that North Shore Rescue uses did that factor in as well because I know it looked at that the time spent on calls as well did that a uh, kind of factor in looking at, at the data and and what the responses have been like well, as, as we pointed out, uh, our research ended in 2020. At that time, we weren't doing night calls. But I can tell you back then, uh, being with the team then, um, it was difficult to have these nighttime calls where you know somebody was perhaps seriously injured or ill and you didn't have the option of flying them out. Uh, either that or you'd have to call the military helicopter, which sometimes could respond and sometimes not. It's a big game changer now that we have our own uh, night capability. We can night hoist people into an out of a helicopter and you know in medicine time is important and so there's a big change uh, but we didn't see that change during our our research because for those 25 years we did not have night option now we do and and looking at the calls again would you say that that the calls that come in generally are are the appropriate that that north shore rescue is the appropriate body and and the body that is most trained or most most able to respond to them Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, in, in the wilderness of the North Shore, and it is wilderness, uh, and there's technical ter- terrain, we're ready, willing, and able to go in there and, and help people. We also now have an advanced medical provider group that can r- provide advanced medical care. Don't forget that most of this was not advanced medical care. The, the twisted ankles, twisted knees, even if it's a broken ankle, they don't need a doctor or nurse. They need a good rescuer with a good uh, first aid background, and all of our team members can do that. But we do have a subset of, of resource members uh, uh, that are doctors or nurses, and they're our advanced medical team, and they can go in, usually with one or two uh, uh, general rescuers, and provide advanced medical care. So in answer to your question, yes, North Shore Rescue are the right people to call for any medical rescues on the North Shore. And only have about 30 seconds left, but I just wanted to quickly ask as well, the medical calls, did it find that a lot of those calls did then, uh, like you said, timing is so important did have to then go to hospital? Yes, uh, about 49% needed to go to hospital. That's not to say they were all admitted, but they needed assessment in a hospital by the doctors and nurses there. So essentially half. All right, Dr. Ritchie, really interesting information from this study. Thank you so much for taking some time and talking to us today. Thanks for having me.
Well, we are taking another look at uh, chronic offenders. Yesterday on the show, we talked about the shoplifting blitz that Vancouver police, the busting of shoplifters. It was a three-week program called Operation Barcode. They made several arrests. They also had several repeat offenders. Well, that is somewhat connected to our next story. This has to do with a chronic offender who entered a guilty plea to the charge of stealing two sculptures worth $40,000. These were thefts that took place from a Vancouver art gallery. Well, we now know that the offender who pleaded guilty in this case has been released. He was sentenced to one additional day in jail, plus about a year and a half of probation. This is somebody who has more more than 100 criminal convictions. And this is the sentence that he received after, again, entering that guilty plea. Well, joining me now is Dror Durrell, who is the director of the Vancouver Fine Art Gallery. Dror, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. We talked to you, I think, a couple of days after you realized or you, you saw somebody take that sculpture and it was the second theft. What is your response when now we are at this point and we know what the sentence was for this individual? Well, it's, it's kind of pathetic that our legal system is uh, literally letting a guy like this with so many convictions, you know, uh, walk away free. You know, and, you know, there's something wrong with our legal system. There's no two ways about that. Do you, do you have an idea or, or have you thought about what you think maybe a more suitable penalty would be? Yes. Uh, throw the book at him and after 123 convictions, you know, he should be in jail for years and years and, and never see daylight. You know, this is a guy that's abusing the system and he knows the system very well and he knew that he's going to walk away. You know, and it makes it makes it look, you know, uh, our system looks pathetic, you know, instead of instead of throwing the book at him and uh, make him understand that he cannot do this and and uh, hurt, you know, uh, innocent people, hardworking people, you know, that he's continuing doing it and he knows he's going to walk away. So, you know, what's wrong with our system? You tell me. Yeah. Uh, can you take us back? Uh, and I, I kind of I touched on what happened back uh, in December, but can you take us back to uh, what happened at the art gallery and what you witnessed? Well, he came in uh, the first day. I was with a customer and uh, uh, stole the first sculpture. I did not even notice it at that time uh, because I was busy. And uh, uh, came in the second day. That's when I caught him and went right after him. But uh, somebody was coming in at the same time into the gallery, so I had to come back to the gallery. And, you know, I couldn't uh, keep on chasing him while I was on the phone. I mean, while I was uh, chasing him, uh, I was on the phone with the police department. And uh, at that time, they responded really quick, you know, which was absolutely amazing. You know, and uh, uh, had him arrested. Uh, they waited for him, and they recognized who the guy is. And they waited for him in his house, and he showed up uh, with the sculpture, carrying the sculpture. And at that time, they arrested him, and uh, they've uh, asked me to sign uh, a statement so the judge can uh, issue a warrant, you know, a search warrant uh, for his place. And... Uh, uh, so I did, and they walked into his place, and of course they found the second sculpture, and that was the end of the story. 
And now I find out that this guy is walking away free, you know. And, you know, it was pathetic that uh, uh, I heard as well that uh, uh, I think it was Georgia Strait, I, I can't remember which uh, uh, newspaper, wrote uh, an article about him, how poor he is and how he was abused as a child and all this kind of stuff. That's the biggest crack, you know, uh, and the biggest joke there is, you know. I mean, be responsible and be a law-abiding citizen and not abuse the system. But this guy knows he can abuse the system and he knows he can walk away free. And and you described, again, what happened, and I, and I know we talked to police at the time, too. I mean, you could hardly uh, ask for a more clean-cut uh, way of things to, to, to play out. Like you said, they saw him carrying the sculpture. They went in, they found the other sculpture in his apartment. He entered a guilty plea uh, to uh, the charge. I think it was the charge of, of theft over $5,000, or two counts of theft over $5,000, and certainly not the first time he'd been in the the court system. Uh, have you changed, because of this, have you changed anything as far as security or anything yes. with your gallery? Uh, we end up we end up spending thousands of dollars uh, on installing uh, uh, electric door uh, with a buzzer. You know, unfortunately, you know, we're the one that has to spend the money and not this jerk, you know. And uh, you know, uh, we're now have to buzz in when we used to keep our door open to anybody to walk in, you know, free and feeling comfortable. Now they have to buzz in in order to get in, you know, and we monitor them through the camera system, which is, that's what we did before too, but, you know, never expected, you know, somebody like that to, you know, to walk in and just steal twice. Not just once, twice. And it, it does seem like an odd thing to take. What could somebody even do? I mean, would I, I, I guess maybe he was going to try and sell these sculptures. What could someone do was, with them? But, you know, but, you know, his pathetic excuse was, you know, when I, when I heard uh, the uh, article, when, when I seen the article that was written, that uh, he always loved art, you know, and that's his, his excuse for stealing. Come on, let's get serious, you know. How stupid can people get, you know? He loved art, and that's why he's stealing. Yeah, no, it doesn't make a, a whole lot of... That's not really a great argument. A lot of people love art, and so they don't walk into galleries and walk exactly. away with it. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, have you had any other thefts or, or anything else as far as... No. I don't know. No, so so this it seems like this this was a bit of an odd one and a bit of a one off. Uh, I sure do hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to face another situation like that, you know, and uh, have to deal with it either, you know. And neither the owner of the gallery doesn't want to face, you know, uh, this situation again. Right. And when you see, I, I know in your area, certainly some other areas of the city, certainly there are other businesses that are repeatedly uh, getting hit. We saw that in the shoplifting blitz, the results of that that were released yesterday. Um, I, I mean, that's great that you've not been robbed uh, repeatedly like some other businesses. But is that kind of, is there a feeling out there? Are you hearing from other business owners a kind of that, that, that fear that this is happening every day? Well, it is. And, and, the thing is, you know, uh, 
the same guy walked into another gallery, which I can't uh, quote the name, but uh, walked into that gallery and uh, literally uh, right in front of the gal that was sitting there, you know, uh, at the at the entrance, walked into the second floor and lifted the painting right off the wall and walked downstairs right in front of her, you know, and uh, walked out with it. So, you know, this is not something that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, just happened. You know, this guy's been doing it, and he knows he can abuse the system, and he knows he can do all this kind of stuff, and, you know, and I'm just amazed at our legal system that it's not doing something about it, you know. Yes, well, you and a lot of other people, I think, hearing the details of this and some of the other stories as well. Uh, Dror, I appreciate so much that you came back on the show to talk about this. I can hear the frustration in your voice. So thank you so much for joining us and to shine well, some more thank light you on this. having me, and I hope, you know, uh, somebody will finally throw the book at this guy. What is being done to prevent feral rabbit populations from growing and growing much larger than they should? One Animal Rescue Society is raising some concerns about this and actually addressed Vancouver City Council on Tuesday this week to talk more about the issues. And joining me to talk more about this is Sorel Sedman, founder of the Rabbitats Rabbit Rescue. Sorel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know we've talked about this in the past, and certainly there are parts of Vancouver uh, where people can go. I know Jericho Beach is one where you'll often see rabbits, uh, other parts of the city as well. Where, though, are you seeing these feral rabbit populations and the concerns of these populations getting just way too big? As far as I know, we've only seen the large colonies at Jericho Beach and in that area. Uh, Any other rabbits um, that are reported to our abandonedrabbits.com site, normally the rescues will go and pick them up. They're, they're single rabbits. But once the rescues stop picking them up, which is happening now because they're, we're all full, um, the FDCA and Vancouver Animal Services uh, also can't take in stray rabbits. So all, all it takes is just not being able to pick up two rabbits in another area. We're seeing some in South Vancouver, uh, East Vancouver, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it, it really doesn't take much. It's just one, one breeder that has leftover bunnies from, from uh, uh, the COVID breeding era it can dump a whole litter in an area and you can have, you can go from, five to 40 in a month. Hmm. And you mentioned, so a lot of the rescues are full and, and are unable to bring more rabbits in or they're at capacity. Is that kind of, is that normal for this time of year or is that something new? This is new. There used to be three rescues that uh, handled, handled the Vancouver area and one of them uh, just shut down and uh, their founder unfortunately passed away, and they have ceased operations completely. And that has left um, us and uh, the Vancouver Rabbit Rescue and Advocacy Group, and um, they're at capacity. They don't actually have a physical shelter, so everything has to be 
uh, done through foster care. So yeah, we're we're all really stretched thin, and this is this is recent. The the post COVID dumps have been coming in in the last three three or four months at most. So this is definitely a a, a new landscape for the the bunnies. And and what can be done then at this point then to, to stop this from becoming a bigger problem? I know you've talked a lot in the past and part of your presentation was about prevention, but if things are already at this stage, how would that work? At this point, um, it really has to be the, the city animal control policy to pick up any stray rabbit the chances of, of those rabbits not being spayed and neutered and out in the environment is uh, pretty much pretty much a given. So they, they have to pick them up before they have a chance to breed. The rabbits are actually also riding in the undercarriages of cars. So they'll be coming from a, an area like Richmond, which is totally overwhelmed with rabbits, and they'll have like young young uh, bunnies that are actually living in the undercarriage, and, and they get used to that, and they'll jump into the into the car, and, and poof, here they are in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Those rabbits have to be picked up. And the other issue is owner surrenders, people who can't keep their rabbits for whatever reasons, um, housing crisis, uh, allergies. They have to have a place for those rabbits to go. Otherwise, they're going to dump them in the park. You can put up all the signs you want saying, you know, don't dump your rabbit. But, you know, what else are they supposed to do? They have to have an intake mechanism for these bunnies. And it's also, I understand as well, and maybe not in Vancouver as much, like you said, Jericho Beach, we see a lot, but but not so much in other areas. But in other places like Delta and Richmond and other cities, they've actually caused a lot of damage. Yeah, uh, Delta actually solved their rabbit problems when they were, I think, somewhere around, um, you know, just a few hundred rabbits. But before they did, they had um, uh, rabbits around City Hall that they estimated uh, $350,000 in in damage to the grounds and and they they burrow under structures. These are European rabbits, uh, which means that they are burrowers. And that does cause an, uh, a lot of extra damage that you don't see from the native rabbits. And there was also other areas in Delta that were having um, quite severe problems. So um, it's a lot cheaper to look at it when there's two rabbits rather than when there's two, 200. <laughs> I, I would imagine. Um, when you mentioned, too, that the burrowing rabbits, the ones that cause damage, are, are the European rabbits. Can you tell the difference just by looking at them? Oh yes, um, for the most part, uh, any any rabbit that isn't a, a, a brown agouti rabbit is going to be a European rabbit. Uh, some European rabbits can be that color, but for the most part, they're um, they're all varieties of colors: black, white, gray, um, you know, blonde. But the um, the native um, and the um, uh, eastern cottontails that aren't technically native, but they're still here are all little brown rabbits. 
Okay. And uh, under the, the, the Wildlife Act, from what I understand too, then, then these, these rabbits are considered feral. Uh, they can be hunted or trapped. I know some municipalities have brought in or have at least proposed culling, which is always a bit controversial. Uh, but what are your thoughts on using those types of means to try and control these populations? Yeah, it, uh, it doesn't really work. They've tried culling in um, Canmore, Alberta. Uh, they spend something like uh, $50,000, $60,000 at least a year on, on rabbit control. But it has to be done methodically. You can't just cherry pick rabbits. You have to take a, a grid and take every rabbit out of that, out of that area. We, we took um, hundreds of rabbits out of the Richmond Auto Mall. And they said, uh, well, if you can't get those last six, it's okay because people like seeing the rabbits. And, okay, we left six out there, and, and the next year there are 60. Right. So you, you can't leave any. <laughs> that. Uh, so at this point, I know, again, you made this this presentation to, to Vancouver Council. Uh, what do cities then, and not just Vancouver, but what do you think cities need to do at this point when you, when you say, like you said, the, the shelters are full, we've lost one, there aren't organizations that are able to go pick them up? What, what is the best approach at this point? They have to uh, provide resources to the city shelters to increase rabbit capacities. Uh, um, New Westminster has actually done a good job of, of um, spay-neuter programs. They have to include rabbits in the sterilization programs. And um, they just have to be really diligent on not allowing the rabbits to be out in the environment. It would be lovely if they could provide resources to rescues to actually start sanctuaries. We're a sanctuary-based rescue and and you can hold a lot of rabbits in you know in a big barn or you know build a enclosure in a in a field and um that as long as they're a resource to do sterilization those rabbits can live out their lives very very happily and for people as well that like you said the the perhaps people that got rabbits during COVID or for whatever reason no longer want those rabbits. Is it educating as well that dumping them in a park somewhere isn't a good idea? The education is always good, except that if there's no alternative, you can you know, lecture, you can shame, uh, do whatever you want, but what else are they supposed to do with the rabbit? The only alternative is to take the rabbit to the vet for euthanization, and almost nobody is going to do that. So it really has to be uh, resourced at the, at the municipal shelter level. The municipal shelters can uh, turn rabbits over to, to rescues if, if the rescues get a bit more support. But it really is important to, to do it when there's only two rabbits. <laughs> That's the key. Right. Um, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. But I understand that you do have an event coming up as well, Sorel, that's kind of an educational and awareness event. Do you want to let people know where and when that's happening? Yes, actually, if people want a bunny fix, instead of going out and buying one from a breeder or a pet store, they can come and do a meet and treat at the uh, Scottish Cultural Centre, which is in South Vancouver, um, Saturday. Uh, we're doing it a week before Easter this time just to make sure everybody is very aware of the Easter problem and they can um, come and feed bunnies uh, from uh, noon till four and they can 
uh, interact with them and they can see all kinds of materials and buy all kinds of little bunny trinkets and crafts and support the rescue. All right. So, well, that's uh, happening again uh, Saturday uh, at the Scottish Cultural Centre. We will leave it there. Sorrel, thanks so much, though, for joining us uh, and letting us know about these uh, issues and what your group is hoping for. Yes, thanks so much for the support.